This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white, and since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. Okay, today we're going to be talking about Medgar Evers. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard that name before, but Garen, introduce us. What do we need to know? Yeah, Medgars was really involved in a lot of different aspects of the civil rights movement. He showed up in a lot of different stories. We've alluded or referenced him in the past in a few of our episodes. And so we're going to try to pull together some of those threads by telling his story today. So he was born in 1925 as one of seven children. And they grew up poor but never destitute. His father, James Evers, was generally respected by the white community and he refused to cower before them. He was a man who uh, owned a couple businesses and had land. They had 12 acres. So he had some level of independence from relying on white people for his income. And he also had a restaurant that white people would patronize. They enjoyed his food. And with that, there was some level of independence and respect that he had where he could maybe get away with a little bit more than uh, a lot of people in the black community. Uh, Because one of the main threats in the South uh, that white people held that was commonly used to suppress black voices and uh, black empowerment was the threat of removing employment. That was kind of like the first line of white supremacy was if black people showed independence, showed initiative, uh, they would lose their jobs and they would uh, remove their employment. But because he had that financial independence, uh, he had a, uh, a little bit of leeway to instill in his children a view of the world that, that showed that black people were equal and were, had a dignity. And he instilled that in, uh, in his children. Evers, uh, Medgar Evers, and then also Charles. We're going to be talking about Charles's Medgar's brother. We're going to be talking about both of them in this episode. Well, and it's important to note that James, Medgar's father, he never let his daughters work in white households because another tactic of oppression uh, from white supremacy was raping domestic help. Mm-hmm. Black girls and women who would work in white households, which was very common. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Black women, because of the economic realities, had to work in white households. There was a time when only 2% of white women worked uh, outside of of their own household. And about half of black women worked. So, I don't remember the exact date on this, but somewhere around the 1920s. Uh, So, there was far more black women had to work because of the economic realities of poverty and income inequality. Uh, But then that work that was like a necessity came with this continual threat of rape. And that was kind of built into the culture of, and there was no recourse. Uh, Black women had no, there was no voice that they had in the legal system. Um, There is basically just built into part of like the job description. And they were basically forced into this position of either your children go hungry or 
you submit yourself to the mercies of a white family and and just hope that you get one of the ones that's not going to be cruel to you. But that was the reality for so many. In Jim Crow as it was in enslavement. So it was the same system. Mm-hmm. Um, but to his credit, James Evers, he, uh, despite the, I'm sure it would have economically been helpful because they grew up uh, again, poor, but not destitute. Uh, it would have been helpful to have that extra income, but he uh, f- forwent that income for in order to protect his daughters and make sure they were safe. And uh, Medgar's mother, Jessie, was known in the community for her incredible compassion and her willingness to serve anyone in need. Uh, in one example, there was a black man, a stranger, knocked on the door at 2 a.m. because he'd heard that that he could get help there. And so Jesse got up at 2 a.m. and made him a meal. Just mm. the kind of woman who would just get up for a stranger at 2 a.m. and, and pro- provide him with a meal, that yeah. kind of hospitality. Yeah. Medgar was always very close to his brother Charles. And Charles just passed away two years ago in uh, 2020. So that just kind of shows this is not ancient history. Medgar very well could be alive today if he had not been killed. Um, Charles just passed away. And they were very close. And in their childhood, you'll see they kind of are in a lot of the stories together. Just a little bit more on his family roots, though. It's also worth noting that Medgar's grandfather had owned 200 acres of corn, peanuts, and potatoes in Scott County in Mississippi that whites took from him through some illegal or corrupt court maneuvers. And that was a common thing that whenever black people owned land, oftentimes banks would just suddenly call in loans or refuse loans or work. There was other ways that uh, the system would collude to try to take land from black landowners. And they were able to take the 200 acres from Medgar's family, um, leaving them with only 12 acres. And that was still enough to give them some level of financial independence, but nothing like what they should have had. So in childhood, a close friend of the Evers family named Mr. Tingle was lynched at the Decatur Fairgrounds. And that was an early impactful wake-up call to the realities of the world's cruelty and of racism for Medgar and his brother. According to the the historian Neil McMillan, in that era, black Mississippians were lynched for such affronts as insubordination, talking disrespectfully, striking a white man, slapping a white boy, writing an insulting letter, in one case a personal debt of 50 cents, in another case an unpaid funeral bill of $10, in another case a $5.50 payroll dispute. Um, Also for organizing sharecroppers, like labor organizing, for being too prosperous, for being suspected of lawlessness, for killing a horse, for conjuring, and of course for mistaken identity. Yeah, Mississippi had a, it's one of the worst states when it comes to, uh, when it came to enslavement and Jim Crow. And just the thought of Megger growing up with Mississippi as a backdrop and his family having some sort of independence and them being able to escape somewhat, you know, some of the, the heinous acts that were routine um, against the black community is just is really powerful that Megger got to grow up understanding and it like basically being able to embrace 
his identity and understand that he is not inferior, see the success of his family, have this, you know, history and have an experience that was a little bit different from a lot of Mississippians around him, a lot of black Mississippians who were impoverished and had to make daily decisions like their daughters did have to go work for white people and their wives had to work for white people and they could be subject to rape or, you know, people being lynched. And, you know, it's it's just amazing to even to just grasp or it's even it's it's amazing to think of him and who he would become and how bold he was in Mississippi. Like when you think there's states like Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, like where you there were there were just unfathomable oppression going on. And to, you know, to know that this man was raised by his parents, who his parents were, who his grandfather was, you know, that heritage is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Garen, why do you think that, I mean, I know the South was like terrible and, you know, they had their own, like, you know, obviously with the civil war and everything, but why do you think Mississippi was so bad? Like, what, did it just so happen to be that's where like, the worst people moved to or like what did was there something that like why why does it always seem like mississippi is burning not doing well i mean i think it's i I wouldn't actually just single out mississippi i think florida had a pretty comparable number of lynchings uh and alabama um i think that there was some of the states down there uh the further you got south yep the more oppressive the system had the ability to be because there was less of a threat of um, like during enslavement of enslaved people running away. And so there was more entrenchment in the system. Um, Once you got up to some of the kind of Northern slave States, uh, they, the system was a little bit different there because of that continual threat. So part of those, like the culture in those States was a little bit more, on the fence, you'll see like in the Civil War, some of the northern slave states actually didn't jump in with the Confederacy. Um, so the further south you get, the more entrenched the system was. Yeah. Because they relied heavily on enslavement. I mean, the prosperity of states like Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee. Well, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, these states were like they thrived in a way from enslavement and benefited in a way from enslavement that other, you know, northern states didn't. Not that every state didn't benefit, you know, but in the South, it was like, it was the way of life. It's interesting because Florida is not like, you know, I'm from Florida and, you know, we always say like, Hey, well, we're like technically the most South outside of Hawaii, but you don't really think of Florida as like a, the South, you know what I mean? And so it's like hard to, and, and you know, I grew up there mm-hmm. and was publicly educated through their system, you know, my whole life. And, I didn't really, obviously we didn't really talk about anything, but mm-hmm. I, it's hard to even lump Florida in with Alabama, mm-hmm. Mississippi, but it makes sense. I mean, they're like yeah. kind of landlocked down there and they're further away from, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, but they were they were actually really- Awful. Awful. Uh, the, <laughs> they were. If you look at EJI's website, there's like a heat map of where lynchings took place. Yep. And I mean, you're from, and I know that you're from like Orange County area. Yeah. And that county had more lynchings than almost any other county. Yeah, in so crazy. The country. So we didn't hear any of that. And Rosewood, Florida. I think Orange County is for sure in like the top five counties with wow. most lynchings. Um, so yeah, they, they were, Florida was, was 
really we should terrible. do something on and the story Orange of rosewood County. the story of rosewood where that township all those people were lynched and killed mm-hmm. yeah there's wow that's there's great we should do something on florida let's make a mental note yep okay sorry florida man i digress okay <laughs> Um, so, but the, back to the story of Mr. Tingle, cause I want to tell this story a little bit cause it was, uh, such a impactful early experience for Medgar and Charles. Yeah. Um, Charles described the incident later on, um, saying, I think the thing that really hurt us, the thing that really, really got to us, my dad had a very good friend, Mr. Willie Tingle. Mr. Tingle was very close to my dad and to the family and the white people killed him. They lynched him and dragged him down through the streets, through the black community. And that's the point I want to emphasize that a lot of lynchings would deliberately drag the victim through the black community. Because it wasn't just about extrajudicial justice. It wasn't just about vengeance. It was about like a public show of power, a shaming, a this is what we can do to you, a threat to the entire community. And so they dragged him through the black community carried him down to the fairgrounds and hanged him up on a tree and shot him. Just shot him uh, all until he fell down from the tree. Medgar and I, we just didn't understand. I and him was about eight or nine or ten maybe. And I said, Daddy, why did they kill Mr. Tingle? Daddy said, just because he's colored, son. And he never gave us any other reason. But the reason they claimed was because he had winked at a white woman. For months, Medgar passed by the remains of Mr. Tingle's clothing. Medgar later said of the incident, Nothing was said in public. No sermons. No news. No protest. It was as if this man just dissolved, except for the bloody clothes. Jesus. Hmm. So difficult to even imagine. Like, just total social silence. And such a broad level of acceptance of such a heinous public killing but that's what it was normal it was, it was normal it, yeah it's like it's nothing's happening socially but so many things are happening psychologically mm-hmm. to both the black people and and the white people that did that yeah and you know? and you gotta think well why is it that the black community it didn't have protests and sermons it was because of fear because of that threat of if you stand up and revolt yeah you'd be killed you'll be killed Medgar and Charles once saw their father extorted by a white man. And uh, this this kind of gets to that point of how their father had a little bit of independence and that economic independence that he enjoyed a little bit more freedom than maybe a lot of the people in the black community had. So in, an, in another story, Medgar and Charles once saw their father extorted by a white man who said that James owed more than he really did. So James refused to pay more than the correct amount. And he even threatened to defend himself by killing the white man if the white man went for his gun, that he, which he was threatening to do. So, James left the store throwing down the exact correct amount of money, not the uh, the larger sum that the man said he owed. And the boys then, uh, Medgar and Charles, expected a lynch mob to come and get their father. But for whatever reason, the mob never came. Hmm. So, they lived with that fear, but at the same time, you can and this is maybe reading into it more than we really know, but because the white community directly benefited from James's food establishment that they enjoyed, they were maybe a little bit more reticent to lynch him. And because he was not employed directly by them, 
there wasn't that threat of him losing his job. Um, so that gave him just a little bit more room to stand up. Although in this case, there obviously there was a very real threat of the possibility that he could be lynched just for demanding that he pay the correct sum, the sum that just for like refusing yeah. to be extorted, there was a threat that he could be lynched. The system was, was that crap. There was also, there was a politician in the South. He was actually twice elected as governor of, of Mississippi, Bilbo, Theodore Bilbo. And as boys, Medgar and Charles attended a Decatur speech of this avowedly racist governor, Theodore Bilbo. And at one point in the speech, Bilbo pointed directly to the Evers brothers and warned the crowd saying, if we fail to hold high the walls of separation between the races, we will live to see the day when these two N-word, he used the N-word boys, right there will be asking for everything that is ours by right. So it just were singled out in front of this huge crowd. And I mean, you can imagine what that would do to the psychology of a child, just, just a tragic early experience. But then in the beautiful poetic irony of God, <laughs> that politician, Bilbo, died in 1947 of throat cancer, as if God made his own racist words carcinogenic in his throat. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the judgment of God on his cruel words. So let's just stop real quick. We got these black boys. They walk by, one, they walk by the clothes of a black man who has been not only lynched, but dragged through their community Two, they on a regular basis, see just white people, how they're, you know, dealing with his dad, knowing that there's always the threat of, you know, lynching. Then you have this governor who points them out and, and says like, if we don't do something, if we don't keep things separate, then these two, you know, N words, have a chance at life that, you know, that threatens our existence. Again, the psychology, just black boys being raised in that, like just what it must have done. And they were the fortunate ones, the relatively So-called, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mind blowing. Mm -hmm. My God, mm -hmm. just the impact of oppression on children. But then also to note that oftentimes in these various like, civil rights movements that happen or these movements that happen, um, resistance, you know, acts of resistance, it would often be, it would often be the young people, the young black people. So with Megger's generation, like they were teen, he, John Lewis, and they, they would be young. They would be teenagers or college students and they would be the ones kind of leading the resistance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, yep. And I mean, I even think of how dark and twisted white people's thoughts had to be like been to listen to those things and somehow agree with that or maybe even be on the fence, but be talked into it or just be like really cowardice. And like, maybe they don't think that, but they're just going along with it of mm -hmm. how, I don't know, that's just like, it's got to do something to you that yeah. isn't healthy. It definitely, it, it. It's, it takes your soul. I mean, can yeah. you imagine white children being raised to hear here and add a boy and amen to the practice of white supremacy? And yeah, it, 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 it robs your soul. And 
this, I mean, Theodore Bilbo won it, like electoral victories multiple times in the state. So he was making these speeches publicly. And even if people weren't willing to stand up against him, which would take like more boldness or bravery, it's like people went to the polls and voted for him in secret. So, I mean, there yeah. was a broad level yeah. of acceptance of this kind of rhetoric and this kind, these kinds of attitudes. Like this, this is the platform that Southern politicians ran on. Um, even after Brown versus Ward, Board of Education for right. decades, politicians ran on a platform of resisting integration. Um, and a lot of places, a lot of schools didn't integrate until, I mean, even 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, because of defiance of Brown versus Board. So this, this was not just one figure who happened to be racist. This was uh, a window into public discourse and what was accepted and like the the kind of rhetoric that could get someone elected in that day was this rhetoric. And you see um, the resistance of uh, Medgar and Charles wasn't just later on, even as children, they started with like little acts of resistance and defiance. Uh, yeah. They, uh, as boys, they fought with the other boys who would deliver newspapers to, uh, th there's these other white kids that would come in and sell the white-owned <clears throat> Jackson Clarion Ledger newspaper in the black neighborhoods. And at the same time, the Evers boys tried to, but were didn't, were not able to. They were not allowed to sell black papers like the Defender. So they would basically just kind of threaten the white boys, like, stay out, don't sell these white-owned newspapers <laughs> in here if we're not allowed to. And so they would run them out of the community. Mm. And in that era, there could have been retribution for that. that I mean, even that could have sparked uh potentially usually it was it was less often that children would be lynched but it it could have at least gotten them threatened or beat up um, or their parents worse. yeah yeah uh, but they i mean after having gone through everything they went through they like you see these early signs that they're not just going to be like go along with the system yeah um meanwhile in school medgar was an excellent student but Decatur did not have a high school for black students. They had just an all-white high school. And so Medgar and Charles had to walk six miles a day. Six miles there, six miles back. Twelve miles total round trip a day to go to school. They, in the, As they're walking to school, these buses full of white students would pass by them. And Charles later tells about how the children would just throw things out of the windows. Um, not just at them, but like at all the, even black like six-year-olds, first graders that are walking along, the, the children in the buses would throw things at them and how the bus driver would intentionally veer to like towards puddles, potholes to splash the black children. Like when there was opportunity, the, the bus driver would veer towards them to, to denigrate them, even as, as children. And they walked to the black junior high school. They mm -hmm. had to go. And then for high school, they had to do something totally different because... It was segregated. Mm -hmm. They had to uh, yeah, go to a whole separate town. So in order to go to high school, Medgar uh, first had to pass a competency exam at the Decatur Courthouse. And then he had to find boarding at a segregated school in Newton. Uh, so he had to actually move away to have access to high, a high school education. Wow. And again, because of his family's like being in a slightly less destitute situation, they were able to do that. But think of how many brilliant minds were just wasted in that generation because of no access to education. So a lot of these high school students or would-be students 
they were stuck in the cotton fields. Um, that's why many black students or black kids never got past an elementary school education. That was very common. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't available for them. Yep. Not, not because of any, like, not because they couldn't, but just it was not on offer. Well, it was purposefully made unavailable. Yeah. It, was right. it wasn't just purposefully not available. Yeah. Yeah. So in high school, Medgar learned diplomacy and how to walk a balance between agitating against injustice and trying to diffuse it before it boiled over. Uh, Medgar left high school and enlisted directly in the U.S. Army on November 7th, 1943, and served in the European theater um, in World War II. He received two combat stars for service and a a good conduct medal. Uh, So he's a decorated veteran. Charles later described that Medgar was always very proud of being a veteran, though he never got over some of the racial prejudice he suffered in the service. He, yeah, even while being decorated as a veteran, faced different forms of racism that were still common. Yeah. Medgar's sister Elizabeth later said of um, this era that he went and served his country, came back home, and he couldn't even go up to a restaurant and eat. And he said, something's got to be done. He resented that he had to sit in the back of a bus, even with his army uniform on. His mother once asked him uh, what was to be done about all of that, since it's just the way things work. And he replied, it doesn't have to be, though. There has got to be a change. He saw the world and all of its cruelty, but he didn't accept it. He refused to accept it, and he never accepted it. And he was willing to risk ultimately everything in order to try to change the world. Not just for himself, but he, we'll see, he talks later on about wanting to change it for his children and for future generations. We've talked about before the returning war veterans um, and how black veterans of both of the world wars came back to America and had a pride and a dignity that was not so willing to submit to Jim Crow and the cruelties they suffered. I just want to read a quote. That is a kind of a window into that mentality. Um, this is a quote from W.B. Du Bois, who wrote, this was actually after World War I, but it kind of captures the idea. Du Bois said, This is the country to which we soldiers of democracy return. This is the fatherland for which we fought. It was right for us to fight. The faults of our country are our faults. Under similar circumstances, we would fight again. But by the God of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses if now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America. Wow. And I mean, just the the thing that gets me the most in that quote is how he said, we're returning from this fight to fight an even sterner, longer, more unbending battle in America. We save democracy in France, let's save it in America. That the, the mentality was to see that, man, like the, the forces of evil. I mean, we think of just how much evil we were fighting in the world wars. But for uh, Du Bois, he's he's pointing out, and, and this is World War One, so it was not as evil as what was happening in the Holocaust. But but just pointing out that the evil in the South is even more unrelenting than than the evils over over in Europe. So in um, 
1946, the Mississippi legislature passed a law exempting returning soldiers, uh, soldiers coming back from World War II, from paying poll taxes. And poll taxes were one of the main methods that the vote was denied to black people in Mississippi. And so all of these, these 80,000 black veterans who returned from World War II suddenly had the opportunity to vote in a way that they hadn't before. And they had a, an incentive to press for the vote because yeah. they no longer had to pay poll taxes. And so the system, and legally they had the right to vote now, but white supremacy wasn't just going to let them do it. So while Medgar and Charles were students at Alcorn A&M College, uh, where they went after they got back from the war, um, they were warned that they should not vote or they would be inviting trouble. But despite the threat, they went to vote anyways. And Charles later described the incident and what came next. He said, the six of us, so they went with some other friends, um, the six of us gathered and walked to the polls. I'll never forget it. Oh, not a Negro was on the streets, which just shows like everyone was terrified just because the threat of violence was particularly acute around elections. Um, when we got to the courthouse, the clerk said he wanted to talk with us. When we got to his office, some 15 or 20 armed white men surged in behind us. Men I had grown up with, had played with. The six black men decided to leave without voting, but the mob followed and continued to harass them. Charles later recalled, while we were walking, the mob continued to drive by in cars. I remember one of them. It was a 1941 Black Ford. Because it went by very slow, a guy leaned out with a shotgun, keeping a beat on us all the time. And we just had to walk slowly and wait for him to kill us. But then in what I think is just a shocking amount of bravery, and this just blows my mind, those same six men returned later that day a second time and attempted to vote. And again, we're blocked. Like even after wow. having a shotgun trained on you while you walk and just wonder if your life is going to end right there. Mm. They had the, the defiance and the bravery to return again to try to vote. But a second time, they were blocked. Mm. So as they continued at Alcorn College, uh, they became very active. Uh, Evers became incredibly active and energetic in his college career. He was the editor of the campus newspaper, the Greater Alcorn Herald. He was the president of the junior class. He was also the vice president of the student forum. He joined the debate team. He was on the college choir, the football and track teams. He edited the college yearbook and participated in a monthly world affairs discussion forum at the all-white Millsaps College nearby. Um, so, he reminds me of Katina. He's just doing everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um and he also got his degree in business administration. Wow. So definitely leader. <laughs> yeah. Man. Uh, brilliant guy. Just incredibly yeah. active and energetic. Medgar and Charles had different leadership styles. Uh, Medgar preferred to work through existing organizations and to rise in the ranks of existing kind of structures of power um, and to change things from the inside whereas Charles was more bent towards, uh, more inclined towards the use of mass protests and agitating um, from the outside through kind of grassroots activism. Wow. And so both had the same goals and they worked together on a lot of things, but they kind of had different approaches throughout their lives. Medgar, while he was at Alcorn, met his wife, Merle Beasley, on her first day on campus. So quickly hit it off, they fell in love, and they got married the day before Christmas on 1951. 
and that was right before they graduated. So then after graduating in 1952, Dr. Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard, who was an active member in the NAACP, offered Medgar a job job selling insurance for Magnolia Mutual Life Insurance Company. He sold insurance throughout the Mississippi Delta and brought Medgar into firsthand contact with the conditions of rural sharecroppers in Mississippi. Um, So this was a really important first job out of college for two, maybe three reasons. I'll say three reasons. First is Medgar hadn't been raised in a rural setting. He was in Jackson. And so he didn't come into direct uh, contact with sharecroppers before this. So when I said before, Medgar and Charles had like relative privilege, this is where he actually saw like how deep the cruelty of the system went. Right. Um, But then simultaneously, he was, his employer was a black man with self-made wealth. And so he wasn't reliant on and subject to the threats of white supremacy to keep him quiet. So it gave him a kind of empowerment. And then third reason it was important is because Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard was active in the NAACP and was a man who was very passionate about the fight for civil rights and uh, equality. And a lot of that influenced Medgar. So one particular uh, Mississippi sharecropper lamented to Evers how oppressive the system was for him and, and explained why it is that he just had to basically suffer under the oppressiveness of the system that would steal labor. It was basically, we've talked about this before, is basically slavery light. It was forced labor. It was oftentimes in many cases, totally uncompensated labor. Many less than half of sharecroppers received any money for their work. And this one sharecropper said, there's no use jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. If we ask questions, we are cussed. And if we push back, we are shot. And that ends it. Basically describing that, like, we have no choice, but to this is our lot in life is to serve in this oppressive system. And yeah, they, the sharecropping system would, through injustice and manipulation and cruelty, force sharecroppers into debt and then use that debt to basically force them to continually right. ever be working towards this unserviceable debt and use that as a way to basically enslave them. Yeah. So Murley later described that uh, she said, at as time went on and Medgar had the opportunity to probe deeper into the sharecropping system, he concluded that virtually every aspect of the Delta Negro's life was deliberately manipulated to produce the results he saw around him. The helplessness of the Negro family escaping the system, uh, the manipulation of the Negro schools, the collusion between plantation owner and store manager, the frequent resort to outright fraud, all combined to give illiteracy and hopelessness an almost genetic quality. Sharecroppers begat more sharecroppers, generation after generation, with almost no hope of escape. And beyond all the built-in controls, beyond the system itself, lay the ironclad rule that no Negro, sharecropper or not, could win in a showdown with a white. The law was white. The courts were white. Beyond even the law and the courts lay white violence that could be formed into a lynch mob on an hour's notice. Many of the people who escaped from sharecropping did so literally by being snuck away, like disguised in other outfits, snuck onto trains. Uh, Oftentimes, they would pull them off of the trains in the nearby. They would like 
white guards would guard the train stations and pull black people off. And so oftentimes sharecroppers would have to be moved by car to a neighboring town's train station with false papers to get a train ticket up north. They, it was literally, they were like imprisoned by this system. Yeah. Um, with the debt being used as the leverage that like they can't go away because they owe us money. But the debt was just guarded and cultivated by the system itself so that they would always have an excuse to keep them trapped as one like almost functional slaves. Uh, on June 20th, uh, 1953, the Evers, uh, Merle and Medgar had a son, Daryl Kenyatta Evers. At the same time, Evers was rapidly climbing up the corporate ladder at Magnolia. And as he rose, he came into closer and closer contact with Dr. Howard, who was independently wealthy. He had a bunch of different business ventures. He had founded a housing construction firm. He had a credit union, a restaurant with a beer garden. He had a, th a thousand acres where he raised a variety of livestock. And he helped found the Regional Council of Negro Leadership, uh, which organized mass meetings, gathering as many as 10,000 people, for example, to listen to Thurgood Marshall in 1954. An important note here. So Dr. Howard was involved with the NAACP, but because he kind of created his own Mississippi organization as the arm that he would use for his activism, the Regional Council of Negro Leadership, he had more leeway than the NAACP to operate in Mississippi because one of the big things that white people throughout the South would do to um, push back against the NAACP was they would just frame it as if it's all outside agitators trying to uh, affect us. It, it, but then because the Regional Council of Negro Leadership was a Mississippi organization, owned by a Mississippian, run by Mississippians, they had a little bit more leeway to operate. And so uh, Medgar Evers actually for two years became the president of the Regional Council of Negro Leadership. And he was very deeply involved in that organization before joining the NAACP. He kind of, we see him now as he's, so he rises up the business ranks of Magnolia. He comes into close contact with these sharecroppers and he starts to become, Become zealous to change the system in a way that is just takes over his uh, life direction. And so where he had been kind of economically comfortable selling insurance, he now becomes more zealous to uh, step into activism. And we see this shift happen. So uh, he spearheaded a boycott of local gas stations uh, that refused to offer these gas stations would sell to black patrons, but they would not let them use the bathrooms. And this was a common thing throughout the South. So he organized a boycott of gas stations that wouldn't let black customers use the restrooms. And he sent bumper stickers all over the state that said, don't buy gas where you can't use the restroom. But then Mississippi had anti-boycotting laws and actually threatened Medgar with those. Um, so then he had to change the wording just slightly to we don't buy gas where we can't use the restroom. So it's not like calling for a boycott. It's just a yeah. statement of fact. So the boycott was largely successful because it gained the attention of the larger corporate structures behind the gas stations. The Mississippi, the local gas stations were racist enough that they were like, we're just going to do this, even if there's an economic threat. But the bigger corporate structures were like, we don't want to sacrifice dividends to our shareholders because of your racism. So you guys need to change. It was effective because of the national structure of the gas stations. Um, if it had just been probably more local 
organizations that they were protesting and boycotting, it, it probably would not have worked as well. It was a good opening move in the activist struggle in Mississippi. Yeah. So Evers would sometimes describe uh, describe to Murley uh, how he would drive by the worst sharecropper shacks, these decrepit buildings with no windows and doors. And he would exclaim, people live in there. People like you and me. He made a habit of bringing clothes and food and whatever items he could spare to ease the suffering of the Delta sharecroppers. And he used covert means to help people flee to Memphis and then up north to escape from the system of debt that entrapped them. In one case in 1953, he actually put someone into a casket and smuggled them up to Tennessee. Wow. This is the fifth. I mean, my, I mean, my dad was alive during this, but most of our grandparents are alive right now. We're alive during this. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously like some of them probably weren't aware of maybe Medgar at this point, but it's just crazy that this, this is not like, we're not talking about the 1800s here. No. Yeah. My dad was born in Tennessee in 1953. Mm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Megger's wife is still alive. Mm. It's crazy. In context. Yeah. And that recently, people were literally having to smuggle themselves out of functional slavery in caskets. And that was actually a common thing um, because when we talk about Rosewood, Florida... That was a, like a whole thing of escaping by being in the casket hmm. with a body, like, or under a body, or like, yeah, yeah it's, wow. a, it's a whole thing. Hmm. Love to talk about that in our f- upcoming Florida episode. Yeah, you guys are like attacking me now. <laughs> I'm, I'm just born there. I wasn't I'm not right? like Team Florida. I about... left Florida as quick as I could. You just should to, have. Just to be clear. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of friends there, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, In 1954, uh, Medgar applied for the University of Mississippi Law School in an effort to desegregate the school. And there was, the the school was like, are you really wanting to come here or are you just agitating to change? But it it seems like it was both um, from looking into it. Uh, He actually did want to get the degree, but also the Brown decision had just come down and he wanted, it was like a test case to try to see if they could force the state to desegregate the school. Uh, so at that point, though, Murley was hurt by that ambition to desegregate the school because she thought and could see that it was a risk to the growing family. Uh, Medgar saw it as precisely the opposite. And I alluded to this earlier. He saw it as an effort to create a better world for their children. He was kind of playing the long game and seeing, like, I want my children when they go to college to have the opportunity to an education like this. So I'm going to risk my own life in order to build that kind of different world. It's crazy, man. He's just a different type of person. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, Mm -hmm. it's really great. Yep. And just to show kind of like what kind of world it was in that day, just his applying to the university was headline news across the state. Yeah. It was like that big of a deal just for him to apply, not even to get accepted or to attend. Um, So the board rejected Evers' application on a technicality over his two letters of recommendation uh, and then proceeded to immediately change the application rules. Basically, he had two white people uh, vouch for him, and that was a requirement for the application. But they threw one of those out on a technicality and then immediately changed the rule to require five white alumni. (laughs) 
Well, it didn't specify that they had to be white, but all the alumni were were white. white. Yeah, yeah, because it had never been desegregated. So, right. so you had to have five, they, and you can just see like them just, yeah. just shift. Let's put our heads together. Yeah, yeah, we have to change. We have to give a race neutral reason, but it has to be racist. Yeah, it has to be racist. <laughs> Um, so they made it so that you had to have five letters of recommendation from alumni, all of whom were white. It's like an interesting um, comparison of how, you know, Medgar obviously isn't trying to like keep forces at bay. I mean, like he was creative and and strategic and smart and how he was like doing his activism. And, you know, I'm not to say this was like complete activism because he wanted to go to law school, but but it's on the flip side. It's interesting how creative and strategic white people were at not like trying to defend it and, mm-hmm. and not in a way that made them look bad. Like even just saying, Oh, I had to be alumni, mm-hmm. you know, cause yeah. they knew if they said white people, you know, that could look bad on them. So mm-hmm. it's just interesting that play of like every, you know, they're just dodging things left oh, and yeah. right and being so creative in their racism. Or yeah. so they thought. Yeah. And I think just, I mean, not now. I mean, it's like, yeah <laughs> we can look back now i mean some people could look right then but it's like pretty clear now a lot of these things yeah yeah when there are white people in power of structures there is an incentive not to just come out and say that you are creating rules for racial reasons because even if you are a school you know even if you're on the board of the university of mississippi and you're like wanting to pass this law to keep black people out of the university there's an part of the population is going to be like a fan of that. But part of the population is uh, even the white population is not entirely comfortable with that. And so they would just dress it up in these like racial neutral reasons um, behind it. And that should just inherently that dynamic should just inherently make us skeptical and not just assume that structural racism, like we should be detectives of whether structural racism exists because it's never going to, I mean, Back then, sometimes it would, but it's usually not going to just come out and say, like, here are the racist reasons why we're passing these laws that disproportionately affect black people. Usually, and we see this all throughout history, that these white centers of power would make moves that were very obviously, when you have the context, were very obviously done for racial reasons. Yeah. But then if you don't know the story and you don't know how things got to be the way they are and you don't know you know, why it is that alumni are so favored in the college admission process. And you don't know why it is that most private, I mean, I could get into a lot of different things. There's like yeah. so many, um, so many ways in which the the system was set up for racial reasons, but it didn't come out and say it. Yeah. And also, an you know, even on our episode of the cost of racism, it's crazy that they really wanted money. I mean, there were other things at bay, but money was a huge factor in all of this and they could have had more if the system was fair and equal from the beginning mm-hmm. or even halfway through or yeah. even three quarters of the way through like at any point in time the system could have been more fair and everyone would have you know all the boats would have risen yeah that's just last place just, aversion yeah that we talked about yeah that's that last place aversion that we yep talked about i'd rather do without than for you to have Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I would rather have $1 than both of us have $2 as right. long as you have nothing. Like, Right. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, racism was an incredibly inefficient and costly system. 
wasted so many resources. And I mean, if you want to hear more about that, you should listen to our cost of racism episode. But they it prevailed because of that last place aversion and white supremacy. Uh, so Evers somehow in all of this, even despite his continual experience of the cruelties of white supremacy, somehow avoided broad bitterness and uh, said later on, when you hate, the only person who suffers is you because most of the people you hate don't know it and the rest don't care. Uh, he often challenged whites who were on the fence about segregation to take sides he acknowledged the existence of, quote, a predominance of white citizens of Mississippi who believe in law and order, justice, and semblance of fair play. However, this group does not have the Christian courage to stand up against the lawless elements of Mississippi and demand that the laws uh, uh, be complied with as moral human obligations placed upon our democratic society. Yeah, Martin Luther King said, beware of the he he spoke about the white moderate mm-hmm. and how dangerous, more dangerous they were oftentimes than actual full-on white supremacist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. But but I think it's just amazing that even in the face of all that he went through, to not be just brought so broadly cynical that that he was willing to to refuse hate, to continue to like call forth the best parts of the white population and uh, call them to stand up for justice and to join him in the efforts for justice. And he did like throughout his career worked with white people who were willing to do that. So powerful testimony to just that humble willingness to forgive, even in the face of having been so cruelly acted upon. Yeah. Which in some ways I, I just struggle with because that is always put on black people's shoulder to be these beacons of hope and peace and, you know, reconciliation and grace um, and forgiveness. Um, You know, just thinking about Tyree Nichols and his mother having to at a vigil call for peace and love and forgiveness in the wake of her son being brutalized by a white supremacist system, even though the, most of the men who participated or people who participated were black. Um, I just struggle with this whole concept of black people being the better people when we're also the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So next episode, we are going to uh, talk more about Medgar Evers' career in the NAACP and His activism continues and kind of shifts into a higher gear as he becomes the field secretary for the NAACP in the state of Mississippi. 